Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. The usual teams are all here. Amy Bird, the token woman. Uh, Todd Pruitt, the token PCA pastor. And me, Carl Truman, the token cultured and intelligent individual on the podcast. Today, we're very privileged to have a special guest, also a personal friend. Uh, this man actually was, uh, I first encountered him as his internal doctoral examiner at the University of Aberdeen in 1998, where myself and the late David Wright examined his PhD dissertation on uh, infralaps and supralapsarianism in the Reformed tradition. Interesting. He's since gone on to great things. He's the author of many books, uh, including most recently a book we want to talk to him about today, Reforming Apologetics, Retrieving the Classic Reformed Approach to Defending the Faith, published by Baker Academic Press. In a sense, he probably needs no introduction to many of our listeners. He is, of course, uh, John Fesco, uh, Academic Dean and Professor of Systematic Theology and Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary in California, transitioning to being Professor of Systematic Theology and Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, out there, Jackson, Mississippi campus. Great to have you with us, John. It's fantastic to be with you guys. Uh, it's good to have you on. Uh, this book, uh, Reforming Apologetics, it's already caused a little bit of a, a Twitter storm out there, I noticed, a few weeks ago. Uh, I wonder if you could give the listeners some context for, for why you wrote the book, what you hope to achieve by it. Uh, many of our listeners may not be familiar with some of the, uh, the more arcane in-house discussions that go on among uh, the Reformed, particularly the Reformed in the Westminster Theological Seminary, Westminster Seminary tradition. So could you give us some sort of background and context as to, to why you decided to write this book and, and what sort of contribution you think it's making? Happy to do so. I think that uh, one of the things that I did is that over the years when I would listen to uh, various discussions about apologetics, I would uh, read uh, things that Van Til, for example, would say Cornelius Van Til, and then I would read classic Reformed theology, say, for example, from something like Francis Turretin or John Calvin, and I wasn't necessarily uh, reading the same things that I would see in both. Uh, I thought that uh, Cornelius Van Til, while making a number of valid and important points, especially as it pertains to the antithesis that exists between believers and unbelievers when we present the gospel and its claims upon the unbeliever, he would end up making comments that would distance him from the uh, older Reformed tradition and especially the Reformed confessional tradition. And so I ended up making uh, a number of uh, explorations, so to speak, in classic Reformed theology. I wrote an essay a number of years ago talking about how the Westminster divines were uh, positively disposed to a carefully defined natural theology that is uh, deriving theological truths from what we see in nature or uh, from general revelation and showing uh, briefly how that was somewhat different than what we find in the Reformed tradition today. Uh, I think that uh, while Karl Barth is certainly a player in a lot of this discussion, uh, I think that there was a, a, a significant uh, turning away from anything to do with natural revelation just because of 
the uh, important fact that, yes, Christ is very important for the, the theological doctrine and especially for special revelation, but Karl Barth and many others, and to a certain extent, even I think sometimes Cornelius Van Til believe that Jesus has to be the, the starting point for all of knowledge. And while that may sound uh, very pious and, and important, uh, at the same time, it differs significantly from how historic Reformed theology, even the theology that we find in the Reformed confessions, has approached the topic. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back. I wanted to recover uh, these ideas that our confessions speak of and ultimately that scriptures speak of so that we can, as C.S. Lewis would say, you know, remind us of forgotten truths that uh, we find in old books and have the fresh breeze of the centuries blow through our minds uh, to do so. Mm, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, John, when I was over a period of years coming to embrace the Reformed faith, one of the things that I saw very clearly was that, um, you know, I was not allowed to hold, you know, basically not allowed uh, to hold any any allegiance or, or gain any help from natural theology or, mm-hmm. or from what, what you also uh, were writing, or, you know, God's book of, of nature. Now, I, I was never really quite sure that why that was the case until – you know, I began to read, oh, well, because if it doesn't start with Jesus, it's starting in the wrong place. And again, mm-hmm. as you said, that sounds very appealing. You know, it's got to start with Jesus. But what's interesting, and the thing that I came to find out was that in this case, some of my conservative brethren and some of my and, and some historical liberals were saying the same thing about that. You know, if you don't see it in Jesus, then then it's a non-starter. As though, mm-hmm. as though what we read in the Gospels about Jesus is kind of the sum total of what there is to know about God, which is, of course, not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if you could kind of help our listeners understand a little bit about why um, the older Reformed tradition was not only comfortable with, but felt it necessary to draw from God's book of nature or from natural revelation um, in addition to special revelation of the scriptures? I think that what we find in older Reformed theology, and you see this, for example, in the Belgic Confession in the second article where it talks about the doctrine of revelation, is that uh, there are two books that God has written, and as you mentioned, one of them, the book of nature. Uh, But in the 20th century especially, and you could say that this begins in the middle to the late 18th or 19th century, the idea was is that we only can or only should use the book of Scripture, and the book of Scripture has to focus exclusively upon Christ mm-hmm. to the exclusion of any and all natural knowledge. Whereas the older Reformed tradition, whether it's in the Belgic Confession, speaking of God's two books, the book of nature and then the book of Scripture, or when the Westminster Confession, for example, talks about the light of nature, uh, and it mentions the light of nature, believe it or not, uh, five times in the confession, and it doesn't mention the Trinity that many times. And so that's not to say that the light of nature is more important than the doctrine of the Trinity, but I think it does reveal to us that the Westminster divines believed that it was an important truth. In other words, it's the idea that we have knowledge from the creation about God and even about ourselves, but ultimately, as Calvin would say, we need the spectacles of Scripture to ensure that we read the book of nature correctly. Mm-hmm. But that does not deny the fact that both believer and unbeliever alike have this knowledge because we're both made in the image of God. And therefore, 
even though somebody like Karl Barth would say there's no point of contact between the believer and unbeliever, there is a point of contact between the two groups because we are both made in the image of God. And you see this, for example, in Calvin and others, that they will say that even unbelievers have the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order for them to be able to understand and do many things, and that if we were to reject these gifts that the unbelievers possess, we're ultimately casting scorn upon the gifts of the Spirit. And so it's to denigrate the work of the Spirit, even in the unregenerate. And so I think in that respect, that's that, that's pretty much one of the big significant differences between, say, 16th and 17th century Reformed theologians and a number of Reformed theologians in the contemporary period. Mm-hmm. And, and the Apostle Paul says that God has written uh, even on the hearts of the Gentiles, his law. Correct. Not in that uh, regenerative sense, but there are things that even unbelievers can't not know. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you introduced this idea of common notions when you're talking about point of contact. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain that concept of common notions and then also how natural reason even ministers to our faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that what happens is that when we look at the history of this idea, the idea of common notions, that we all have shared ideas that we possess by virtue of being made in the image of God. It's something that begins... This may scare people at first, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that appears among the Stoic philosophers. They talk about common notions or a concept called prolepsis, the idea that it's kind of like a pre-knowledge. Mm. And what it is is that theologians picked up this idea and said, yeah, there are some shared things uh, that we have, uh, shared knowledge. And then what they did is they looked at the scriptures and they read, for example, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says that we have the works of the law written upon our hearts, or they read uh, the narratives from Exodus where the pagan Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, gives advice, uh, wise advice to Moses about how to lead the people of Israel, even though he's unregenerate. Mm -hmm. Or you see another example when uh, Jonah is on his uh, journey and the, the waters turn very rough and all of a sudden he basically tells the, the sailors, the pagan sailors, throw me overboard. And they say, no, we can't do that. That's wrong. Uh, how is it that these unbelievers have these ideas? Well, many exegetes, for example, when you read Calvin on Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he talks about this, these common notions. And yes, it's an idea that is shared among Calvin or even Thomas Aquinas, which, uh-oh, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, and it's like, oh, that must be bad. And the idea is, is that no, even though the Reformation improved, changed, and brought many doctrines into the al- greater alignment with Scripture, especially in soteriology, ecclesiology, uh, polity, and worship, there are many elements that we would say are part of our shared Catholic tradition, Catholic with a small c, in other words, the Mm -hmm. church universal. And this is one of them. And it is, uh, there's just so much documentation, and I try to document that in one of the chapters to show that there's large-scale agreement on this issue. And you find it even uh, advocated by Herman Bovink, for example, where he's talking about this idea. But then Cornelius Van Til rejects this idea because he says, well, it's Roman Catholic and we have to uh, get rid of all forms of Roman Catholicism. But yet, 
what does he reintroduce? He says, well, we have to appeal to people on the basis of the fact that they're covenant breakers and they're made in the image of God and they know God. Well, that's common notions. That's common notions by another name. Mm -hmm. And so I, I say at this point that he needlessly distanced us from our own tradition. And so this is why we have to recognize that what the teaching of scripture says, like, for example, in Romans 2, that we, we have this information and share it in common. You see it especially in, in Acts chapter 17, where Paul appeals to these common notions when he is talking to the philosophers at Mars Hill. And, right. and that's, that's the explanation that J. Gresham Machen gives, and I think it's, it's a correct one. This might be a – I hope it's not leading us up a, a rabbit trail, John. But mm -hmm. just as a, a general thought, I, I've become increasingly convinced that the, the shift to a focus on epistemology – how people mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. that takes place really at the Enlightenment, uh, late 17th, early 18th century, is a fundamentally wrong turn in, in thought. Uh, and it seems that, that a lot of the Van Til kind of trajectory essentially is a, an expression of that turn in a Christian idiom. And a number of the problems which you've touched on there would seem to me to flow from that. Well, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think that in general, what you find is that, as you said, because philosophers, whether it's uh, Rene Descartes or whether it's Immanuel Kant, they turn to the question of epistemology, in other words, how we know, in an effort to try to box out uh, God and his claims upon uh, human beings. I think you see this even in, say, Immanuel Kant's essay uh, entitled, What is Enlightenment?, where it's a casting off of all authority, whereas in the earlier tradition, we simply take it for granted, the deus exit, uh, which is Latin for God has said, and we don't ask questions about how we know. We just take it for granted that we do know these things because God has created us in, in a certain manner. He's made us uh, with the capacity for natural and special revelation. And so we take these categories for granted. But by moving to the question of how we know, I think there's almost a sense in which we're acknowledging some of the supposed validity of the Enlightenment criticism of the Christian faith. And I think we're almost starting from an unfair vantage point instead of acknowledging, no, we're all made in the image of God. We know these things. We can understand and receive this information. So let's just start from there. Yeah. In much simpler terms, I think I'd want to talk about it in terms of faith-seeking understanding. Mm -hmm. Whereas I can't help but think that with the Enlightenment turn, it goes to a full-fledged understanding-seeking yeah. faith, which is the exact opposite of what the tradition has argued in the past. One yeah. thing that that really leads to in your writing, too, is a call for more humility mm -hmm. in our apologetics and in our conversations. And one, th yeah. one line I really like that you say is, it's one thing to claim that Scripture helps us to understand the telos of creation, but mm -hmm. regeneration does not make us smarter. And yeah. I underlined that and just thought, oh, you know, you really, it's, it's easy to fall into that category to think that, you know, as Christians, we are now smarter than unbelievers mm -hmm. because we do have special revelation. But, yeah. um, and, you know, even as a laywoman, it was such a struggle, like, when, especially when my kids were little, of the whole, 
whether to put my kids in Christian sports and, mm-hmm. and you know, that's biblical label in front of everything, even with who you hire mm-hmm. to work in your home. You know, there's all this pressure mm-hmm. um, to hire Christian electricians and things such as this. So when you said that, it really connected on a practical level to mm-hmm. me that, um, no, I actually want the, the best electrician um, yeah. who may be smarter than the Christian electrician in this area of common knowledge that we share Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, what is it that actually makes softball a Christian sport versus a secular sport? I really think that your book leads to a lot of practical life choice decisions as well. And maybe you could answer yeah. too, it's just like, you know, what are the goals of our apologetics then? I think you're right in the sense that I really wish that uh, being a Christian made me smarter because I stink at math. I'm horrible at <laughs> But uh, I think that the thing that uh, really strikes me is that you could say, and I, you know, obviously I think people will debate this back and forth, but uh, Van Til uh, introduces a lot of these ideas for popular consumption into mm-hmm. the Reformed faith. You could say that Kuiper gives them a push in that direction mm-hmm. as well, uh, to a certain extent, but that it leads to things like uh, theonomy, the idea that it's only God's law, his specially revealed law that is useful for the church or for people in general. So it's scripture only. There's no categories for any kind of natural knowledge. Uh, same thing in the counseling movement, that the Bible is the only book that we need for counseling. You see this in more popular form. Anecdotally, I was once talking with a very committed Vantillian, a good brother in Christ, uh, but he told me once, I know more about physics uh, than Albert Einstein because I have Christ as my wow. starting point. <laughs> and wow. I said, well, okay, that's interesting. Have you ever studied physics? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, to all due deference, I, I don't think that you know more than Albert Einstein does about <laughs> physics. And so, so I think that really it, almost, it almost feeds what I would call a, a Christian kind of imperialism where we think that because we have the Bible, therefore it gives us a leg up. And what I think that I would want to instead say, and this is what the historic reform tradition says, and I documented in the book, is that the knowledge that we have about God is what is sufficient essentially for salvation and for serving him, uh, but it doesn't give us every piece of information that is out there and that some of this gets distributed among unbelievers and therefore as you said amy we have to be humble and take a humble stance towards the world and so rather than coming at the world in terms of uh, taking it over or conquering it we need to take off our robe and uh, get on our knees and wash feet Mm. and be kind and be humble with our claims saying that yes we do know where salvation comes from, but that doesn't automatically know everything. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Our own reformed uh, tradition, the, the, the Westminster standards tell us that, you know, what is it? A larger catechism question five, what do the, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer mm-hmm. is, you know, they, they, they principally teach, you know, what man is to believe about God and what uh, duty man has towards God. Those are the two things that scriptures print the scriptures principally teach. Now there are mm-hmm. other things that we learn, but that's that's principally what it's about. Um, it's not there to teach us um, uh, uh, everything we need to know about physics or brain surgery or plumbing, right? Yeah, yeah. Or math. Or math. 
I wish it was. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say, on that basis, I probably know more about baseball than uh, any non-Christian baseball. And I've only ever been to two you, games. Yeah, you know more about like, baseball than Alex Rodriguez. That's I do, I do. And it bores me to tears. <laughs> yeah. What kind of critical reception has the book received, John? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> well, I suspect that uh, if uh, somebody is a card-carrying Antillian word have absolutely no room for any kind of critique that they're probably going to hate the book. And I say, okay, that's all right. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not uh, worried about uh, if people reject it. On the other hand, I think that if, if you want to take honestly the differences that exist between the historic reform tradition and what Van Til says, where he himself at certain points consciously uh, departed from it, then I'm hoping that the evidence that I present will we'll point people in a direction to say, okay, well, I can see some areas where Van Til needlessly distanced us from the tradition. I can see some places where I'm not, I don't think that Van Til is right here. I think he actually may be incorrect. And then some other points where you say, oh, okay, there's some good harmony here and there's still some, there's still some agreement there so that we can carry these things together. So in the end, I think that, um, I, I hope that it's a good it's a good book to push the conversation forward uh, so that we can, in one sense, uh, recover what our historic reform tradition has taught. And that it's like I tell my students, I, I, the more I study the confession and the catechisms, I realize uh, how wonderfully uh, made they are and that God was very gracious to us and giving them to us. They're, they're not, you know, they're not inerrant. They're not the authority of the scriptures, but really good uh, and they're really helpful and i think the more we study them carefully and see what our forefathers taught uh, the better off i think we'll be yeah i mean i think what one of the things you sort of semi allude to there john of course is the last 30 40 years have seen a tremendous uh, explosion in scholarship on the mm-hmm. 16th, 17th century, the relationship between the 16th and the 17th century and the relationship between uh, the Protestant Reformation and post-Reformation and the patristic and medieval periods. And you know, when I was looking at your book, it seems to me that what you're doing is is drawing on on that scholarship to demonstrate mm-hmm. that, that certain of the, the traditions that have emerged in the 20th century that, that claim uh, a monopoly on the Reformed faith, are actually uh, bypaths. They mm-hmm. are deviations in some sense from the historic tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. It used to irritate me uh, when, when students would say to me, you know, if you don't hold to this position, you're not Reformed. Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, actually, no individual and no tradition associated with an individual gets to decide what reformed is reformed is the confessions Mm -hmm. and there there is a a a nice catholic breadth that allows i mean you referred earlier to a you know a a dear christian van tillian brother Uh, there's a nice breadth to the reformed confessions that allows us to embrace as christian brothers and sisters those with whom we have some fairly substantial differences on on certain issues Mm -hmm. but we should not allow uh, certain, if I can be very specific, I suppose here, certain strands of Dutch neo-Calvinism mm. to narrow what we understand the Catholicity of the Reformed Confessions mm. to be That's teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I couldn't agree more. Just because it's so important for us to recognize what is central, what is key in our confessional tradition, 
And as you said, what is secondary or perhaps even in some cases tertiary? Because, you know, at a very practical level, I always want to ask the question, okay, let's, we can debate apologetic methodology and we can have differences of opinion, but I want to say the buy-in for having that discussion is let's go first tell five people about the gospel before we have this discussion. That's good. You know, one of the things I, I appreciated about the book and, and am continuing to appreciate and, and why I was enthusiastic about it was, and Carl and Amy and I have talked about this in, in past episodes and in conversations about things like um, gay marriage and some of the best thinkers we've encountered on the issue of, you know, the T loss of marriage in, in terms of the whole gay marriage debate mm-hmm. have been from Roman Catholics because they have been so free to appeal not only to scripture, but also to, you know, what we would call the book of nature. Mm-hmm. And some of these conservative Catholic philosophers have been and continue to be extremely helpful because um, they deal so well with natural revelation. And so they can bring both scripture to bear as well as those things that that you can't not know that they're able to address those. And, and um, you know, there had been a time in my life where I didn't think you were, you know, allowed to do that. And so th- this this has been extremely helpful in our current moment with some of the confusion and chaos we're dealing with, um, where we not only bring scripture to bear, but we're able to say to even an unbeliever, you know, you know, this. Uh, this mm-hmm. is clear. Our bodies shout it. The cells in mm-hmm. our bodies tell of it. Um, and, and that we need to be able to appeal to those things. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Just because you see this in the historic reform tradition, say from somebody like a Turretin, where Turretin can positively cite Aquinas on certain issues, but on other issues such as transubstantiation, yeah. he can say he's absolutely wrong. And it just because he's wrong on one thing doesn't mean that he is wrong on everything. And I think that in the contemporary period, what is so troubling to me and what we find as a result of, I think, enlightenment influences on the church's doctrine is the all or nothing approach. Yes. It's 100% or it's 0% with nothing in between. And that's an enlightenment idea this idea that everything is deduced from one central point and you have an ex- exhaustive, comprehensive explanation of everything and, and that systems are mutually incompatible, that I think is a bad idea. And you don't find that in historic reform theology. And I think that that's something I hope we can pick up is that we would be critically appreciative of theology wherever we find it, whether it's within our tradition or outside. I think your your worldview chapter is is so good in, in hitting on that. And maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of the origins of worldview teaching and, and, and that term and concept in itself. Because I know just studying up on that sort of thing in my young adult years, the Christian resources marketed to me as a layperson were, were saturated in worldview teaching. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of thinking through all that. And it was really this exhaustive explanation of reality. But then when I found myself trying to have conversations with unbelievers and and using that technique, I found it wanting. And and I really appreciate the way that you are very direct in your critique, but then you also, you know, you're fair and you say that this transcendental argument is is a useful tool in the apologist Mm -hmm. toolbox, but it's not this all-encompassing 
uh, reality that we argue from. So maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I find is that when I read about worldview, and that's such a common term these days, right. we use it regularly, we hear it regularly, we read about it regularly, is that it's an idea that came from Enlightenment philosophers. And you have James Orr, for example, who picks up the idea, and then Kuiper picks it up from James Orr. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that bothers me is that I don't ever see anybody critically assessing the idea, or to put it in Vantillian terms, where's the presuppositional critique of <laughs> worldview? Mm. Uh, you just have different theologians using it. And so what I find is that when I, when I looked at the historical origins of the idea and its philosophical baggage, it's this idea that, yes, it's a comprehensive explanation of everything and when I would read the Bible, very simply, it doesn't seem to fit that, that model mm -hmm. because the Bible, for example, one of the biggest categories I think that's missing from the contemporary discussion about apologetics is wisdom literature. Mm. The, the fact that wisdom literature admits we don't know everything. Yeah. There are many unanswered questions, but in spite of these unanswered questions, we know enough that God tells us we can trust him anyway but that doesn't mean that that we know everything mm -hmm. and so i think that that's one of the biggest things that i want to convey it's okay to talk about a worldview a general outlook a christian outlook versus a, a, a buddhist outlook for example on the world so long as we have to i think set aside the idea that, that the bible gives us exhaustive detailed comprehensive knowledge of everything that hopefully it helps us to walk with a little bit of a humbler gait it's interesting that you raise the issue of wisdom literature there, John, because again, one of the one of the things I, I find problematic about the Enlightenment, and indeed, when you when you look at the history of Western thought, you can see something like Romanticism being some of response to this is that that knowledge is only part of what makes us human. Mm -hmm. uh, I have some serious hesitations about James K. A. Smith's project, mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that he brings out nicely is that love and desire is mm -hmm. a fundamental constitutive part of what it is to be a human being. And when I teach Descartes at Grove, I make the point, you know, Descartes' system actually, for me, means that the thing that's most certain in my life, humanly speaking, my love for my wife and her love for me, uh, is not actually a, a susceptible to, to, to knowledge as such. Mm -hmm. I think what you've just said brings out nicely that um, the Bible doesn't just speak about epistemology. Uh, human beings are creatures of desire. When Adam sees Eve for the first time, when he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I don't think he's simply making an empirical observation there. I right. think there's something very deep about his own self-consciousness that's taking mm -hmm. place as this beautiful creature, uh, this, this creature of desire appears before him. Yeah. Well, uh, folks, the book is Reforming Apologetics, its author is John Fesco, who has been our guest today. John, thanks so much for joining us. This is a conversation, obviously, we could continue to have, but uh, we do appreciate uh, the time you gave us. We have uh, really enjoyed the book, and we do uh, commend it to our listeners as a very helpful resource on any number of topics. I, and I think you gather that from just simply the, the, the brief conversation we have had uh, today. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. If, uh, if you would like to receive a free copy 
of Dr. Fesco's book, Reforming Apologetics. You may just be able to win one by going to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter to win a copy of this excellent new book, Reforming Apologetics. And while you're there, because we are a listener-supported podcast, you may want to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide content like what you have received today. Thank you for joining us, and we will look forward to being with you next time. We got married in a fever. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... It seems to me that the, the people who may suffer the most spiritually in those situations are the camp workers. They hear Todd preach. Yeah, that they, may, may not be a... a little <laughs> probably bit. isn't up to the standard of the usual guy. But, yeah, they get over they it, though. Todd they get preach. over they it. They recover within three or four years, probably. Uh, we'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.